Uh, if you have Bibles, go ahead and make your way to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19. Uh, if you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles that were under the seats that Katie mentioned, uh, page 824 is where that starts. And today, we're kicking off a six-week series on the topic of marriage. And we're calling it Marriage from God for Good. And the idea behind that is that as Christians, we should long to be defined by not just what we're against, but by what we're for. And tragically, and you know, we, we bear a lot of responsibility for this, the perception of much of our culture has to do with, with what Christians are against, what Christians are opposed to. You think Christianity, a lot of our culture immediately goes to the things that they're opposed to or against. But we should strive to be known at least as much, if not more, for the things that we are for. And in our cultural moment, marriage relationships is an area where I think this is especially critical. The danger I think that exists is that we as Christians would allow ourselves to be simply defined by what we're against. That we would draw some moral lines, we would divide camps, you know, and say, here's homosexuality and here's heterosexuality and let's just leave it at that. And miss and and be content with still a, a really low view of what God has designed and intends marriage to be. So my hope for this series is that we would be awakened or reawakened to really the beauty and the potential of what God has created marriage relationships for. And when it comes to marriage, you know, we as a church, we're a we're a people in all places. We're people in all places in this. Um, we're a church of engaged and newlywed couples. So just last weekend, Tim and Lori Jekyll's oldest daughter, Sarah, married her now husband, Brett. And we have a handful of engaged couples in our midst. Um, Chris Arnold and Kristen Bates are engaged. Matthew Fox and Lisa Kunzweiler are engaged. Jeremy Henninger and Aaron Rodriguez are engaged. Jason Poblete and Katie are engaged. Uh, correct, Megan, I'm sorry, did I say Katie? I apologize. You're, you're not engaged to someone different there. <laughs> Craig and Alethea got engaged this this past Wednesday. Uh, Nat Everett and Jen Reed are getting married this coming Saturday up in Erie. So there's a lot of excitement about marriage in our church. But at the very same time, there's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of heartbreak about marriage in our midst. There are marriages, we're we're a church of people who who have marriages that are in crisis right now. And we have people in our church that are in every other state that a marriage can be in or go through, from bliss to sorrow to the ever-lurking mundane. Beyond that, we're also a church of divorced people and single people, some of whom want to be married and some of whom don't. But for all of us, regardless of where we find ourselves in that, marriages and our view of marriage really impacts everybody. It impacts everybody. And what I hope that we'll see in these upcoming weeks is that God's plan for marriage is not just about the couple. It's not just about what's good for the the couple involved, the husband and the wife. It's very much for that, but also it's for the common good. That marriages are actually meant to be a gift of God's grace, not just for the couple involved, but for all of society, for all people. So all of us, therefore, have this, should have this vested interest in understanding and pursuing this design of God. And the first thing that we're going to see about God's design for marriage is that it's a relationship 
modeled on his own relationship with his people. And specifically that marriage is a covenantal relationship. So we're looking at Matthew 19 verses 1 through 9 today. These are the words of Jesus. He's traveling around. He's teaching in his ministry. And he comes to Judea and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, ask him this question. And we're going to pick that up in Matthew chapter 19 starting in verse 1. So you can follow along with me as I read. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And this is God's word. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for your word to us. Thank you for, Jesus, your teaching on topics that bear incredible relevance to our lives today. And I pray that we would be people increasingly characterized by what we're for and not just what we're against. And that you would help us to even learn from the example of Jesus how he navigates conversations, how he points people to the beauty and the potential of your design. Open our hearts, soften our hearts, help us to understand, help us to apply this to our lives, and help us to more than anything see Jesus and rejoice again in the work that he does on our behalf. And we pray this all in your name. Amen. So just two things we'll briefly look at this morning. Um, first, we want to see that Jesus is for marriage. Jesus is for marriage. And then we'll come back and we'll look at the difference between covenantal and contractual relationships. So first, Jesus is for marriage. When you read the accounts of Jesus' life and his ministry, the Pharisees are always pressing him with questions. They're always trying to trap him. They're always trying to pin him down into a situation where he either has to reject some teaching of God or reject the Roman Empire that's currently ruling over that territory where they're at. And if you've ever experienced something like this, then, then you can empathize. It's so much harder to speak about what you're for when someone comes at you with a loaded question trying to pin you into a corner. So for me, I've experienced this a handful of times over the past couple years. I work out of coffee shops a lot. And in coffee shops over the past couple years, probably 10 or 12 times, um, get into a conversation with someone I haven't met before. The fact that I'm a pastor vocationally comes up pretty quickly. You talk about what you do for a living. And about 10 or 12 times in the past few years, the immediate follow-up question from someone has been, well, what do you believe about homosexuality? And I get that because that's, that's the moment that we are in right now, culturally. Like that's, the, that's the issue that a lot of people want to talk about. And you know, what does it look like for Christianity to navigate this? And where do we land? And what do we believe about that? So I get it. At the same time, I hate it. I don't like that at all. 
Because I'd never want someone's perception of Christianity or of Christians to be defined primarily by that, by a view on, on, on homosexuality or, or any moral issue. So I don't want to pretend that I, that I don't have a view on that, but I've had to think really intentionally about how to actually talk about what I'm for in that conversation rather than just say, hey, you can pigeonhole me into what I believe about that and just put me in, in the box over here and assume I'm a bigot like probably you want to assume in this moment. Deuteronomy 24, Moses writes that it's permissible for a husband to give his wife a certificate of divorce. And that's what the Pharisees are asking Jesus about here in Matthew 19. There are these radically different interpretations among different rabbis, different rabbinic traditions that were passed down. So some said that divorce was only permissible in these extreme circumstances, like adultery or abandonment, things like that. Others said, if you simply found another woman more attractive than your current wife, write her a certificate of divorce and send her on your way and marry the more attractive one. Jesus says here, Moses allowed that because of your hardness of heart. So in other words, it was, a, it was an accommodation to deal with the incredible sinfulness that exists in our hearts as human beings. And in the ancient Near East, when Moses was writing that, women had such a, a low place in society, and there weren't some of the same legal protections that exist today. So if there was a situation that would arise where a man wanted to divorce his wife and was not permitted to, it wasn't all that uncommon that there would be coincidentally an accident where that woman would no longer be alive anymore, and then that man could go on and marry whoever he was planning on marrying in the first place. And so among other reasons, Deuteronomy has this accommodation for divorce because it's, you know, it's better that this unwanted wife be alive and divorced than dead. What else does Jesus say here, though? He says, from the beginning, it was not so. And so throughout this passage, he then is pointing back to God's original design and intent for marriage. He does give this one specific instance where divorce is permissible, sexual immorality. And we don't have time to do like an in-depth look at divorce and what that means. And then Paul's words from 1 Corinthians 7 kind of adds a piece to that. We'll come back to that another day. But it's important to see here when Jesus says that, because this is a common misconception, Jesus doesn't require divorce in those situations. Like you never have to get divorced. It's permissible at times. What I really want us to see, where we're at in this series today, what I want us to see from Matthew 19, is how Jesus, in this conversation, as the Pharisees try to pin him into a corner and trap him, he finds a way not just to be anti-divorce, although he is, but he finds a way to be in favor of God's design for covenantal marriage, for a covenantal relationship between a man and a woman. And, and, and the application for us is that, you know, whether this is the first century or for us today, if all we're doing is looking to Jesus or looking to Scripture to find, like, the flow chart of, like, when is divorce okay and when is it not okay, Jesus is saying, you're missing the point entirely. You're missing the point entirely. Jesus there, when he says this response to the Pharisees, he quotes directly from Genesis chapter 2. Directly from Genesis 2, and he goes all the way back then. He's saying, God, God the creator is the one who made everything that exists. And the, the pinnacle of what God created and all the goodness and perfection of his creation was 
one who bears his image, a human being. But then he says, in the midst of all of that goodness and perfection, there's something that's not good. Loneliness and isolation. He says it's not good. Something's not right with this picture. And he says it's not good that man should be alone. So God creates another image bearer. He creates woman. And God unites man and woman into this one flesh relationship. What were formerly two individuals have now, in a mysterious way, become united in a way that really no other human relationship can replicate exactly the same way. Sex is one aspect of that one flesh union. That typically tends to be where our minds go first to becoming one flesh. And we'll spend a week talking about marriage and sex in in a few weeks in this series. But it's also this heart and soul level union. It's this binding to one another. It creates a a new primary loyalty, like Jesus quoting from Genesis 2, a a man shall leave his father and mother, and the wife leaves her father and mother, and the two are joined together. It creates a new primary relationship and primary loyalty. So Jesus says here that what God, in his infinite wisdom, and in the beauty and goodness of his creation, what God has joined together in this way, let not people people in their rebellion, people in their sinfulness, people in their arrogance, people in their fickleness, let not them separate. So this is where it becomes important for us to think about the difference between covenantal and contractual relationships. So second, let's talk about that. A lot of life involves contractual or consumer-based relationships. We're all in probably a handful of these right now, whether we recognize them or or not. Um, Shay and I this week are in the middle of switching internet service providers at our house. Um, My relationship with my internet service provider is a contractual, consumer-based relationship. So they offer a service that I want, and I have money that they want, and when they deliver the service, I give them my money. Okay, and we start this relationship with a piece of paper that they give to me. It outlines all the terms and conditions, and I sign my name on it. Here's what they're going to do. Here's what I'm going to do in return. But if either of us becomes unhappy in that, then we end the relationship, and it's over. Uh, They stop giving me the service, and I stop giving them my money. In contractual or, or consumer relationships like this, the needs of the individual parties are more important than the relationship itself. So not once in this process have I thought, well, I don't really care that I feel like I'm paying too much for what what I'm getting. My relationship with Comcast matters more to me than that. Okay, said no one ever (laughs) about Comcast in particular. (laughs) They are not known for their good customer service, if um, in case you've never had that experience yourself. Covenantal relationships, though, are the exact opposite. They're the exact opposite. In covenantal relationships, the relationship itself becomes more important than the needs of each individual party. So think about the relationship between a parent and a child. A parent pours way more into that relationship than he or she ever gets back. And yet, if a parent walks away from that relationship, if they were to walk away because they're not satisfied or they're not happy, or they're not having their needs met in that relationship, there's a huge social stigma associated with that. Why? 
Why? Because largely our culture still sees the relationship between a parent and a child as a covenantal one. But our view culturally of marriage relationships has been sliding away from that for a really long time. A really long time. That's, this is not a recent phenomenon. Legal scholar named John Witt said, this is about 15 years ago they said this. It's, it goes even way farther back than that. If, uh, he said this, The ideal of marriage as a permanent union designed for the sake of mutual love, procreation, and protection is slowly giving way to a new reality of marriage as a, what he calls, terminal sexual contract designed for the gratification of the individual parties. In other words, what he's saying there, our view of marriage as as a society has become much more contractual than covenantal. And if you listen, you'll actually hear this in the everyday phrases and language that we use. So if you were to survey people who are married about why they decided to get married to the person that they're married to, you might hear some phrases like this. I like who I am when I'm around him. Or I like the way that I feel when I'm around her. But the question that you would have to ask next is, so what happens if that changes? What happens if you don't like how you feel when you're around that person, or you don't like the person that you are when you're around that person? If you change, or if they don't uphold their end of the bargain, at that moment is the critical juncture. Does your individual need take priority, or does the relationship take priority? And that's exactly the heart of the question that Jesus is asked to answer in Matthew 19. Jesus, is it okay to divorce your spouse for any cause? They just as well could have asked... Jesus, is marriage a covenantal or a contractual relationship? And Jesus says unequivocally, the design of God from the beginning, from creation, is that marriage is a covenantal relationship. Now to many people, including many people in this room, no doubt, covenantal relationships sound crippling. They sound terrifying. They sound even enslaving. Okay, like, like isn't that too risky? Isn't it too risky for a relationship to take precedent over my individual needs and my desires? Like, what if I change? What if my spouse changes? What if things aren't fun and enjoyable anymore? And in reality, of course, those things aren't possibilities. Those are certainties. You know, you will change. You know? I will change. And there will be moments in marriage relationships where the words fun and enjoyable like aren't even on your radar. They're not even on your radar. I think one of the, uh, our fear of that is one of the primary reasons that there's been this shift to view marriage contractually rather than covenantally and to view it as a, what John Witt called a terminal sexual contract or a, even a terminal happiness contract. Similar idea. And that's because as people who have this deep longing in our souls for freedom and deep longing in our souls for joy... We become quickly suspicious and fearful of anything that sounds dull or anything that sounds enslaving. So the question that we have to ask then is this. Where is true joy and true freedom actually found? And more than anyone else in the history of the world, Jesus is for joy. And Jesus is for freedom. He says, I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly, have it to the full. He's for your joy. And he says that 
the one that I set free, the one that the Son sets free, that person is free indeed. He's for freedom. And as Jesus calls this first century audience, and then us by extension of that, back to God's design for marriage, we have to conclude that real joy and real freedom then are found in covenantal marriage relationships. And in turn, this apparent freedom of a contractual relationship where we move around based on our individual needs as much as we want must be some kind of counterfeit freedom. It seems like freedom. It seems like joy. It's got to be some kind of counterfeit. Covenantal relationships are freeing in a way that the contractual can't possibly touch. There's a pastor and author named Tim Keller, and he talks about this in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. He says that, that in dating relationships, which are contractual, you know, dating relationships are a contractual relationship. You're not bound to each other in that moment. There's this constant pressure to impress and to entice the other person in that relationship. And it's not that you're trying to, like, intentionally deceive someone. It's just that consciously or subconsciously, you're always putting your best self forward. You're real sensitive to that. You're trying to make yourself appear as lovable as possible. And Keller says, continues on and says, the legal bond of marriage, however, creates a space of security where we can open up and reveal our true selves. We can be vulnerable, no longer having to keep up facades. We don't have to keep selling ourselves. We can lay down the last layer of our defenses and be completely naked, both physically and in every other way. So what I hope we see is that the covenantal bond of marriage is actually part of the freedom offered by Jesus as he reconciles the world to himself. It's part of him reconciling the world. It's our self-destructive tendency to enslave ourselves over and over again that leads us to think that joy and freedom are found in contractual marriage relationships. But that is a counterfeit freedom and a counterfeit joy that in the end are really no freedom and no joy. The same Jesus who is for joy and for freedom is the Jesus who is for marriage and for the covenantal type of relationship that God has designed marriage to be. And this freedom and this joy in covenantal marriage is possible, how? Only because the God who joined man and woman into this one flesh relationship is himself a covenantal God. And we've already gotten to celebrate one picture of that today, that God binds himself to his people and he invites them to bind themselves to one another in a community called the church. He doesn't do that. God doesn't bind himself to his people because we're lovable in and of ourselves, because we're desirable, because we've made ourselves lovable and desirable. He does that actually in spite of the fact that we've rejected him, that we've spurned him and his good gifts, and that we fall so woefully short of our end of the bargain. The Apostle John says it this way in 1 John 4, This is love, not that we loved God, because we don't left to ourselves but that he has loved us and that he has sent his son as a sacrifice for our sin. So he will be our God and we will be his people even when that comes at the infinite cost of the sacrifice of Jesus. And it's this covenant-making, it's this covenant-keeping love of God that enables our own covenantal relationships, especially the covenantal relationship of marriage. Because we've been loved that way, by Jesus, 
we can love each other with that same kind of love. And this is so much more what I wish Christians and Christian marriage was synonymous with. You know, that we were the people, the Christians, when they think about Christians and marriage, that we were the people that loved each other with the same sacrificial love that we ourselves have been shown by Jesus. That we covenant with one another because God in his mercy has covenanted with us. And that we then had the opportunity to mirror that, to reflect that, that covenant-keeping love of God to the world around us. And that in that, they would then see the place where real freedom and real joy is actually found. So because we have been loved covenantally in Jesus, may our marriages be characterized by that same covenantal love. And may we love one another. May we pursue this. May we love one another not for how lovable each of us are in a given moment or how much our individual needs are being met in a given moment, but may we love each other Because whether it's our best day or our worst, the author of life has offered his covenantal love to us. And he's invited us then to mirror that covenantal love with one another. Amen. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we are people in desperate need of your mercy. And we've already been reminded of that today and getting to hear snapshots of people who have seen that experience in their own life. And we're reminded again right now, God, as we think about the kinds of commitments we make to each other in marriage relationships and how, how much we don't live up to those. And we also see you, God, as the one who is the perfect, perfect covenant maker and covenant keeper. God, we are dependent on you completely, and we're dependent upon your covenant keeping love with us, that we might even have a chance to show covenantal love to one another in our marriages. But I pray, God, that because you have shown us that love in Jesus, because it's done, Jesus' work is done, and we have thrown our lives on him, that we would actually be those who, in response to that, get to mirror that covenantal love with one another. And I do pray, God, that you would work in us in such a way that our marriages would be vibrant and thriving and healthy for our own sake for the sake of each other and the husband and wife in that relationship, but even more than that, as a picture to a world that desperately needs that picture, the covenantal bonds and this love that you have invited us into is where real freedom and where real joy are found. So as we come to this table this morning, remind us that you have made this possible by the sacrifice of your body and blood. This is a picture of your covenantal love for us. And we come rejoicing because you have paid our debt. I pray this in your name. Amen.